0: I'm just glad people are talking about issues related to AI because it is not all a bunch of fun, fancy tools that save us a bunch of time and energy. It has a real impact on people, has a real impact on society, and we need more conversations about it. And if the letter does that, then great. Welcome to episode 41 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput, Chief Content Officer at Marketing AI Institute, and my co-author of our book, Marketing Artificial Intelligence, AI Marketing in the Future of Business, which, by the way, if you don't have a copy, get a copy. Uh, it came out in July of last year, so a little bit before Chad GPT, um, but it's a great starting point if you're just trying to figure this stuff all out. All right, today's episode is brought to you one by my raspy voice. I am <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure to be able to do this today. My voice just disappeared over the weekend after our AI for Writers' Summit last week and like ten talks and a little bit of a cold. but we'll see if we can make it through without a coffee. <laughs> so this episode is brought to you by Brand Ops, so we appreciate them su- supporting the show. Brand Ops is built to optimize your marketing strategy, delivering the most complete view of marketing performance allowing you to compare results to competitors and benchmarks. Leaders use it to know which messages and activities will most effectively improve results. Brand Ops also improves your generative marketing. With Brand Ops, your content is more original, relevant to your audience, and connected to your business. To find out more and get a special listener offer, visit brandops.io slash marketingai show. That's brandops.io forward slash marketing AI show. I man I should have had you do these reads with my, <laughs> save my boys from, uh, and then, uh, we also have, uh, our fourth annual marketing AI conference or Macon returns to Cleveland, Ohio this summer. Join us July 26th to the 28th for our largest and most exciting event yet. The conference brings together hundreds of professionals to explore AI and marketing experience, AI technologies, and engage with other forward thinking marketers and business leaders. You'll leave Macon prepared for the next phase in your AI journey with a clearer vision and a near-term strategy you can implement immediately. Uh, hurry prices go up on April 14th. You can save $400 on any pass. Learn more and register at www.macon.ai. That is M-A-I-C-O-N can't wait to see you i'm working on that agenda as we speak well not literally like over the next 30 minutes but uh today we're trying to get that agenda you know in a really good place and we'd love to see you in cleveland at the convention center okay i'm gonna take a drink get my voice settled and mike lay lay the groundwork for us today Sounds good. Just to remind anyone who
1: is new to the audience, we try to cover kind of three main topics happening in the world of AI, you know, once a week, I think hundreds of things probably happen in the world of AI, we try to pick the most relevant, most important ones, and then we do some rapid fire topics. And we have a ton to cover today. So we're going to move fast, and we are going to get through it all. First up, the internet is basically on fire about this open letter that has been published by the nonprofit Future of Life Institute, which is then signed by a number of well known AI researchers and tech figures, including Elon Musk and Steve Wozniak of Apple co founding fame. And they have called on all AI labs to pause the development of large scale AI systems for at least six months due to fears over the profound risks to society and humanity that advancements in ai they believe are posing to us today now the letter notes that ai labs are currently locked in an a quote out of control race to develop and deploy machine learning systems that no one can understand, predict, or reliably control. And the signatories, of which are, I believe, about 1,200 or so, including many other famous computer science researchers, they call for a public and verifiable pause on the development of of AI moving forward for at least six months, and they want the development of shared safety protocols for advanced AI design and development. So this has caused what I would call a major debate in the AI community and the world at large. How legitimate do you find the concerns expressed in this letter, Paul? And would you say this kind of proposed just six-month ban on AI development is advisable or realistic?
0: Listen, it's, it's not going to happen. Like, th- there's no ban coming. I, I, so when I read this, like, so Elon Musk signs that Yashio Benjio or Yashio Benjio, um, there's some big names, Wozniak, as you mentioned. Like, I looked at it and I thought, okay, th- this is interesting. The ones, so, so these two very extreme sides, like Jan LeCun at, at Meta is, is actually like, no, this is ridiculous. Like, we're not going to ban the technology. We're not going to slow it down. So he is very, very strong in the camp of this is absurd. Like these language models are not a massive threat. We will figure this out. Like, just keep going. And then you have the other people, although a lot of the people that signed it are like, yeah, I don't really agree with everything in it, but we think it's important that we have this conversation. So I looked at it. I did sign it, Mm -hmm. but I didn't sign it honestly under the assumption that they're actually going to do this six month thing. I have more concerns with the near-term impact on society and the workforce that aren't being talked about enough. And so I looked at this letter as like, well, at least this will bring it to the mainstream. Like at least we will now get some of these really important issues that we've talked about on this show before, including misinformation, disinformation, propaganda, which is going to be insane in the next election cycle in the United States. Like I I, I am entering the point where I don't even know that I wanna go online for like the six to 12 months before the election in the US. There, The ability to tell what's real and what's not is almost gone. Like look at mid journey, you know, five and the things that are being created there. You're not gonna be able to trust photos unless they're coming from a trusted source, like nothing online is going to be real. Like you're just not going to know whether the article is real. So we're gonna have to very quickly move to an awareness about how much misinformation and truly fake content is going to be everywhere online. And so, if it takes a letter like this to get the mainstream media talking about very real problems in AI, great. I don't think enough people are talking about job loss. Like we try and look at the positive side of AI and the you know the net positive long-term impact, and we'll create new jobs, and it's like we'll, we'll find a path forward. I'm not so sure that that's how it's going to play out over the next like six to eighteen months. I think there's going to be a lot of pain. I think. It's AI is coming for knowledge work way faster than anybody is ready for. And it, I, I think you're going to see a lot of negative impact that just people aren't ready for. And so I looked at this and thought, all right, I get, I get the people on the one side are like, this is ridiculous. Language models aren't AGI. We're not, you don't need to be worrying about this crazy thing about AGI taking over the world. And I understand their perspective and I see what, where Jan LeCun's coming from. And I, I I can, I can agree with that. And I can also see the perspective of people like an Elon Musk. Now Elon's, you know, certainly far to the edge of like, you know, this is a very real danger to, to the world. Mm. And I understand why he thinks that. And so I'm kind of like sitting in the middle looking and saying, listen, most of what we do is what is like the the next 12 months. like? Like, I'm trying to constantly figure out what is the impact on real people over the next 12 months? And like, I mean, I'm getting texts from my mother-in-law about this stuff. And that's where I know like it's, it's become a thing. Like Mm -hmm. everybody is talking about this and trying to understand this. And so I feel like in one extreme, this letter uh, was a PR stunt. And I think that some people in AI feel that's all it was, was just like a PR stunt by some people who can benefit from this positioning. I get it. And I think in other cases, these people have very real concerns about AI. They may not agree with everything in the letter, like I don't, but at at minimum, I'm just glad people are talking about issues related to AI, because it is not all a bunch of fun, fancy tools that save us a bunch of time and energy. It it has a real impact on people, has a real impact on society, and we need more conversations about it. And if the letter does that, then great.
1: Yeah, it really seems like we are at this inflection point, both in terms of the technology itself, like we've discussed since ChatGPT, which feels like years ago, even though it was a few months, GPT-4. But it also seems like we're at an inflection point with broader awareness of the risks that could potentially re- evolve from this technology. And I think we're seeing that in a couple related stories as well. So, two big things that came out right around the same time as the letter. So first, UNESCO, which is a, a UN body, has actually called on governments to implement an ethical AI framework that it developed and that member all member countries in the UN actually signed on to. Um, and it is coming out and saying that countries need to start implementing this framework or at least some type of ethical AI guidelines and regulations ASAP, essentially. The director general at UNESCO actually is quoted as saying regarding this initiative, quote, the world needs stronger ethical rules for artificial intelligence. This is the challenge of our time. At the same time, whether you agree with it or not, Italy just straight up banned ChatGPT until OpenAI can prove that some of the data that it used to train the tool and the models was not in violation of things like GDPR. So when you kind of see this increased regulatory and government interest in AI risks, and you see this letter come out, are you anticipating a new wave of possible restrictions or guidelines around the technology?
0: I don't know how fast it's going to move. I mean, Italy moved fast, obviously. And Mm -hmm. interestingly enough, I'm going to Italy in June to do a talk about use (laughs) chat. chat (laughs) It should should be interesting. Um, I I think that, you know, as we've talked about previously on the show, the government has to get involved. Like there there has, and even OpenAI is calling for that. Like the AI researchers who don't want the future of life Institute letter, who don't think that's necessary. They still are calling for the government to get involved because they, you know, they see the power of this stuff and they, they, they need regulation. They need some sort of guidance here. Um, I just don't know how much we can rely on it. But I, I like now, I'm afraid we're just going to see a bunch of pol- politicians mm-hmm. jumping on the bandwagon here with no understanding of the technology. It's, you know, it, it's bound to happen where all of a sudden AI is going to be become a flashpoint within elections. Like, oh my gosh, like now. Now we're going to truly sensationalize this thing on both extremes. So, yeah, I just, I don't know. I think it's really important that people get educated on this stuff. I love that the listenership to this, the audience, you know, for this show has been growing so much because so many times we're not telling you the answers. Like we don't have the answers. We're just trying to surface the things that are really important for you to be thinking about critically and challenging yourself. And I think moving forward, that's what's going to be essential is that we have a lot of really smart people. Thinking about these issues, thinking about the impact they have in their region, in their country, in their industry, and starting to figure out how to move forward. Because we cannot rely on the government to do it, but they're going to get involved one way or the other. And the better that society understands the issues at hand, the better they'll be able to determine what the politicians are saying that actually matters versus what's just straight up politics. So... I, again, I think I think it's good. I think it's what needs to happen. The government needs to get involved. They need to be looking at this stuff, uh, and they need to do it quickly. Um, but yeah, whether these you know these specific initiatives play out and become a huge um, ongoing factor, I, I don't know. It's too early to say. This is all kind of happening pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, and I think one last note that's probably important to make here is that, you know, especially if you're really new to AI, we're not talking about the letter or Italy banning ChatGPT because we are sitting here saying you got to be really careful about whether or not you use AI. Your company will use AI, so you need to figure out as best as you can using the imperfect information available how to chart a safe course through some of these regulations anticipate what could happen next because your option is not to sit on the sidelines if you want to stay in business. So another really hot topic these days, especially with the increased awareness of artificial intelligence and more and more non-technical or non-AI people using the technology is prompt engineering. So the art and science of telling a machine like ChatGPT exactly what you want it to do and getting really high quality outputs. Now, there's plenty of guides out there on the internet about prompt engineering, but Paul, you actually wrote about a really interesting possible future that you see as possible for prompt engineering. And you posted this initially on LinkedIn saying, quote, how soon until we have a prompt copilot that helps users write far more effective and optimized generative AI prompts. Think of it as a prompting assistant that improves and expands your prompts as you type them. So you're kind of raising this issue that it's possible with all the emphasis and importance we place today on prompt engineering, that it may actually not be that important of a career path or a skill set to necessarily develop, you know, on a long enough timeline. So have you learned of any companies since posting that are building a prompt copilot to help out with prompts? Do you expect someone to build this soon?
0: I, I do expect it to be built really soon. Uh, if I had the ability, I would build it myself because, uh, but I don't think it's going to matter. I, I think it's going to be essential within any of these application companies and the language model companies. So the point I was making, and this sort of something I thought about Friday as I was doing a talk, it just kind of arrived like, oh, wait, that's probably what's going to have to happen. Like as I was explaining prompting to the, these people. Um So yeah, there's all this talk uh, and all this like onus put on the user right now. So if you think about these application companies, these AI writing tools, image generation, video generation companies, as a user, it's amazing technology. Your ability to get value from them is actually largely dependent upon your ability to develop a prompt. And if you're on Twitter anywhere these days, like everybody's got these threads about Hmm. how to do prompting and like, it's really impressive stuff, like, but they're really going deep on how to get crazy value out of these generative AI tools. But the vast majority of people are never going to take the time to do that. And so if you're an application company, if you're building a generative AI tool, the, the, the value to market for your company, the ability to scale that company is dependent upon the ability of the users to properly prompt the system. That's a major friction point. So there is massive incentive for the SaaS companies building it and for the language model companies that are developing these models that are built on like Cohere and OpenAI and Anthropic to not rely on the user to get good at prompting because otherwise you're never going to scale the company the way you could. So it only seems obvious that that you would have this. And so I've known this for a while. Like I've thought about like, okay, prompting at some point won't be as important. It was actually one of the points I made in my keynote on Thursday for the AI Writers Summit, mm-hmm. but I hadn't thought about the co-pilot thing. I was like, oh, wait, this is actually infinitely solvable right now. So if you think about the way Google Smart Compose works, where it just like finishes your sentences, it's kind of predicting the words in the sentence. And that's the basic thing that we're doing with any AI writing tool. So one of the most advanced areas right now in generative AI is coding. So the ability for like in, in GitHub Copilot and Re- Replit ghostwriter, which we'll talk about Replit in a couple of minutes, they're completing code as you're going. It's like taking its knowledge base of coding and able to as- truly assist you in creating these things. Well, there's no way that that doesn't happen with prompting because a prompt is basically just a set of instructions, but the system can learn what a great prompt looks like and help you build it out. So once it knows you and it knows what you're doing, it can naturally start auto-completing or assisting you as you're going in this thing. So, yeah, it was one of more, more of those, like, I just threw it out to like, Hey, I'm thinking out loud here on LinkedIn, but isn't this something that seems obvious and is anyone building it? So to your question about building it, um, Megan from Jasper, I think commented that they had a, a version of it in there, like almost like a prompt recommender. Okay. Um, in which, the tool
1: Jasper AI.
0: Yeah. Which seemed gotcha. like it was heading in that direction where it was like, like giving you like improving your prompt, basically. It's not exactly what I was envisioning, but I, I know I'm not the first person to think of this I, and I'm sure there's developers working on it, but no, I haven't seen anything yet where someone's like, yep, built it. Here it is. Here's the Chrome extension, go plug it in. But it seems inevitable that it's going to be baked into these applications and into the language models themselves. So we
1: kind of talk about prompting, as cool as it is, as still this friction point for businesses, right? It's like limiting our possible output, even if you're okay at it. And especially as we roll these tools out to people that have no real idea what prompting is or prompt engineering, what happens when we remove that friction point? Like, what are some of the
0: benefits? How does that change the game? I think more people realize the power of these models way faster because again, like the example I gave is if I go into Dolly right now or mid even, and I try and create something in it, I'm not a designer. Like I, I'm not mm-hmm. going to get the same value out of it that a designer would. And so that to me is if they make it so that I can prompt at the same level as a great designer, well, now I'm all over that tool because now I can use it with much greater immediate value to me as a user. And so I think you're going to see adoption rates skyrocket for these tools and also the value people get out of the tools will become greater. But it'll also then trigger the impact on the workforce and knowledge mm-hmm. workers and creative workers much, much faster, which goes back to the importance of having these really hard conversations and getting the government involved because it's going to have a, a really quick impact. Um, but I think that's that's the major takeaway for me, is if these companies can build this capability in there, then the utilization rates will skyrocket for the tools and people will get way more value from them. That's awesome.
1: So our third big topic today is one that, I, you know, I think is we both agree is absolutely critical. Um to understanding what's possible with AI, but I think it's maybe flown a little bit under the radar in terms of the implications here. But Bloomberg actually just announced they're developing a new large scale generative AI model that is specifically trained on a wide range of financial data. So basically, they're layering ChatGPT over Bloomberg's proprietary data. And for anyone who's not familiar with financial services, Bloomberg terminals cost like 25 grand per user per year to license. They sit on top of a large amount of proprietary data that Bloomberg has been collecting and refining for almost probably 30 years now. I 40 they, years. they said 40 do. years. Yeah. Um, so that basically Bloomberg has one of the best financial data sets in the world. And now they're layering on top of it something like robust models like ChatGPT and GPT-4 derived models to actually create essentially a financial copilot for people in financial services. So this is a really interesting and notable example of applying existing models and tools and customizing them to your own proprietary and custom data. Why does that matter?
0: This is, we've talked about this one before too, this idea that these customized personalized models is where this was all going to go. And so Bloomberg GPT is just one of the best examples I've seen done done at a large scale. And I think that what it represents is what's going to happen in every industry. You're going to have these verticals that, um, you know, I said in the thing, like imagine the same idea applied to manufacturing, healthcare, insurance, law, retail, education. Like if you have a proprietary data set you have a chance to build a customized language model. So if you think about GPT-4, it's a general language model. It's trained on a corpus of knowledge from the internet, whatever their data sources are. But your data at your insurance company or your healthcare system or whatever it is, that's, that's private data. They don't have access to that. It cannot train on that information. So the organizations that have massive amounts of proprietary data that's, in, that's organized in a way that can be used to train or tune these models, no one else is going to have that and so if you have that kind of data and you can build a model that is trained on that then not only can you build a much more interactive and engaging internal knowledge base so almost imagine like think about some use cases here you know if you build a knowledge base for all your like faqs your sales team your service team your marketing team your ops team like it's all just living on a server somewhere and they have to go query it and they have to search for it and then they got to find an article and they got to read an article like It's the traditional way of finding and consuming information. Now imagine all of that private data has been used to train a language model that you can interact with the same way you would interact with like a chat GPT, where you just go in and query it. And you say, hey, um, what happened with this client in September of 2022? Who was on that team? Um, What was the issue that came up? Like Anything you can think of, and it's all there. It's all been trained into this model. And you can now ask it whatever you want about analytics, about customer service, about operations in the organization, and it gives you a narrative response versus having to send you down and go find links and clicking back and forth. And that's the kind of thing we're looking at here. So Bloomberg talked about, you know, what I said, they're going to use it for um, improving existing financial natural language processing tasks, such as sentiment analysis, named entity recognition, news classification, question answering among others. They talked about there's gonna be internal uses for this thing there's gonna be some value to customers that could you know benefit from this Mm -hmm. so you can think about taking all of your knowledge all of your data and having it trained on a specific model that only your team can access or an interface you could create that could be public facing for people interact with you know data you're willing to make public but the point is you own that data no one else can build a model like yours and that i think is the real key here is you're seeing Bloomberg is a very high profile example of a company that knew they had a ton of data, they had the right team in place to envision what was possible with it, and they built their own language model using that data that no one else has. And I think we're going to see a flood of these things this year. You're going to see massive amounts of this. Um, so it's just kind of like a something to watch. And then the final thing I said in that post was if you work at an organization that has unique and valuable data sets, you should be racing to explore this. Mm -hmm. So if you work at a big enterprise, you should be talking to the CIO, or if you are the CIO, you should be like talking to people who know what to do with this stuff, um, go get a language model company, like cohere and bring them in and say like, what do we do? So yeah, I just, I think this is gonna be a huge story moving forward this year. We're gonna see a lot of examples like this.
1: Yeah. So we're not talking even here about just eventually having financial services GPT or insurance GPT. It's insert your company name here, GPT.
0: Yeah, I think it will be both. Yeah, yeah. I think you're going to have like vertical specific models that people may like uh, curate a bunch of data sources and like license that data to train a model. So you could see groups or associations play in that that space or you're going to see just big enterprises build their own models. And it might be both like I I, just going to have language models everywhere.
1: A really interesting example of this to hammer home the value of custom data is that Seth Godin, who is a legendary marketer, I mean, everyone in the marketing industry is familiar with Seth Godin's work. For 20 years, he's written a a mega popular blog with his thoughts on marketing and sales. He actually announced the other day that he has trained a version of ChatGPT on all 5 million words of his blog. So you can go into the tool, and essentially ask questions of Seth, or at least Seth's public writing. So that's GPT. Yes, Seth <laughs> GPT. You got to call that And he is treating it as an experiment. I'm not sure there's anything beyond it being an experiment, but it really proves out this idea that custom training. Models on your own data is going to be the way of the future. do you kind of see that happening as well for individuals
0: oh yeah i i mean i th- I think every journalist, every author, every um podcaster, anybody who creates a corpus of knowledge of their mm-hmm. own information, whether it's like right now we're doing this in text, but just imagine being able to feed it video as well, yeah um or the transcript, so yeah, i mean I have. I have tons of friends in the the marketing industry who are authors and and podcasters who have been doing it for 20 years. I mean, like Seth, you have 5 million words. So yeah, you can train really cool chat modules that are just trained on your data. Now, the trick here is if all of Seth's data was already publicly available, there's a pretty decent chance that OpenAI sucked that up when they were Mm -hmm. training GPT-4. So is it really any more valuable than you know, just going into G, you know, chat GPT and ask questions. I don't know. I haven't tested right. it. Right. But I think that again, to drive home the point of proprietary data that people don't have access to train on versus data that is just op- on the open web and was probably already ingested into training data. <laughs> but yes, I think corporations will do this. And I think individuals will do this to where you have these personal bots and either they're used for your own internal sake. Like you're just trying to query. Like, I mean, imagine if you and I had this, we have, mm-hmm. I've written three books that combined have... Uh, what, 150,000 words, we've written a thousand blog posts. We've done, what is this? The 41st episode yeah. of the podcast. I have like 400 video. Like if I could just like dump all that, just hit upload all that stuff, you know, two days worth, just load it all in. And then I could just start talking to that. Like, what did I say right. when I was here? What did I say about this topic? Or what have I previously, that would have such utility to me. Like I would use that all the time. And I, I think that we're heading there. Like I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that that's a 2023 thing for mm. a lot of organizations. You'll be able to build that kind of stuff this year.
1: You heard it here first. Paul GPT is coming. It,
0: yeah, <laughs> gotta get that. Uh, oh man, I was gonna say the URL. Don't buy that URL. I'm gonna go buy it before we publish. this. Yeah, just yeah,
1: good call. <laughs> Um, so this actually does segue really well into some of our rapid-fire topics because another uh, high-profile individual who's experimenting with ChatGPT was a guy named David Sachs, who is a well-known VC investor, entrepreneur, has been involved with some major tech companies over the years. And notably, he is a one of the four co-hosts of the All In podcast, which is one of the top business podcasts in the world. It has several... Uh, billionaires or at least uh, 100 millionaires who are investors, VCs, and some of the top people in business today kind of riffing on the week's topics. And today, or this past episode uh, that I believe dropped on Friday, uh, actually was almost all about artificial intelligence. And so they talked about David Sachs's experiments with ChatGPT. Uh, he was using it to cut down Uh, the time it took him to write a post that would have taken him a week, he said, to about a day. And it's a very in-depth post on startup advice that he used ChatGPT to help write. So that was quite impressive as a use case. But I think another thing that came up during that conversation was this crazy Reddit post about AI and careers that is making the rounds. And unfortunately, it's not positive. So the All In hosts uh, talked about this Redditor who is a 3D artist at a small games company. And I found the post um, this past week. And in it, he says the following. My job is different now since Mid Journey version 5 came out last week. I am not an artist anymore, nor a 3D artist. Right now, all I do is prompting, photoshopping, and implementing good-looking pictures. The reason I went, want to be a 3D artist in the first place is gone. I wanted to create form in 3D space, sculpt, create with my own creativity, with my own hands. It came overnight for me. I had no choice, and my boss also had no choice. I am now able to create, rig, and animate a character that's spit out from mid-journey in two to three days, before it took us several weeks in 3D. The difference is, I care, he does not, meaning his boss. For my boss, it's just a huge time money saver. Now, this person also mentioned that one of their colleagues, who in their estimation produces Slightly lower quality work than them has embraced the technology, and, as a result, is producing comparable work now and is getting all the praise from their superiors for using AI What did you think about seeing this, hearing the commentary on all in around it? There were definitely some differing perspectives on is this positive for the artist eventually or negative? What were your thoughts
0: um, mm. i it, It's inevitable I mean, this is what we've talked about for the last year since dolly came out is you're you're taking away the thing that makes people feel fulfilled in their life. Like artists don't necessarily want efficiency. They want to create, they want to, you know, like, like this person saying, they want to use their own creativity and imagination. It's not about how many characters can I build for this video game in two days. It's the process of building and imagining that is what makes them love what they do. So one perspective on this is well now you can do 10x the work like you you can make you know 10 video games in the time and it would make one and the artist is going to say yeah but i'm not actually making anything i'm mm-hmm. just prompting the ai to make the thing so the thing i enjoyed about this is gone and this is even at our writer summit last week i ended it with that my, my keynote with that idea that Every industry, every profession is, you know, what is going to be lost? What is it going to be gained and when? And in this case, what was lost is the thing that this person loved. What is gained is productivity. But is that enough for this person? That's the question. And, and when is like right now, like it happened overnight. As, as this person said, um, this is hard. Like it's, it's really hard. Um, I, 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 I think I said in you know my keynote last week, like I, I wish I had better guidance for people or i I had better answers for people i think we're all going to have to figure this out together and i don't know exactly what this person's career path becomes like Mm -hmm. i I don't if if you don't accept the technology and what it does and that your role is evolving into this prompting role i'm not sure what that means yet um And so I, I just think like, we're going to hear lots and lots of stories like this. We're going to hear writers from designers, illustrators, video producers, um, architects, like it's, it's going to come really fast. Mm -hmm. And I, that's why I said, like, I, I, I want to believe that the net positive is going to be there in the end. And like, um, the all in podcast guys talked about every time there's this like, you know, major innovation that new jobs emerge and it happens. And I, I believe that. And I I am, you know, if you look back in history, every major technological innovation, disruptive innovation that reset, you know, industries, they talk about farming as an example, Mm -hmm. people found other jobs, like job market continued to grow. I just don't know that there's ever been a technological revolution that happened in four months. Mm. And yes, I know AI is 80 years old. And like, this has been kind of progressing, but realistically for most people, they had no idea what was going on with AI up until November 30th of last year. And now all of a sudden this stuff's coming for knowledge work and creative work and nobody was ready for it. And so I, I just, I don't know. I mean, we, we need a lot more dialogue. We need a lot more people thinking about this because there's no clear path and most technologists just assume. The world will do do what it always has done, which is find new jobs for people and, you know, new roles will emerge. And again, I, I, I truly want to believe that, um, I, I just, I don't know how quickly it's going to happen. Definitely important topic. And I
1: think we can certainly one, we'll certainly address further on future episodes as, as this kind of evolves and hopefully give people some good questions to ask some good paths to go down as they explore this on their own.
0: Yeah. And we'll, we'll start like at some point we're going to probably start doing, I don't want to like overcommit us, but we'll probably start adding like a second episode of this podcast each week where we start bringing in people to talk, go deeper on topics. Cause again, Mike and I aren't experts on every one of these topics we're talking about. A lot of times we're just surfacing information, providing a perspective, hopefully, you know, an insightful perspective for you to help start forming your own opinions. But some of these topics just need people to come in. I mean, that's why we did the AI for writer summit. It's like, I don't know, like we got to go deep on this one and we needed lots of perspectives. And so we think we'll do more stuff like that to try and keep this conversation going and and help people find some answers. Amen. So
1: Next up is that we actually heard that Replit, uh, which creates cloud so- a cloud software development platform uh, and is also the creator of Replit Ghostwriter, which is an AI co-pilot for developers, is actually teaming up with Google Cloud. So this seems like a pretty direct response to the fact that Microsoft owns GitHub, which has its own copilot that is quite popular among developers and being used to actually generate code and increase developer productivity. Um, What does this mean to you for the market at large? I mean, are we going to kind of see this programming co-pilot arms race start developing?
0: Yeah, developer jobs are going to go away fast. Like, it's going to be crazy. Um, It's getting really good. Replit's a company to watch. I think more than anything, it's just a company to get to know. I met Amjad, the the CEO, co-founder, about a a month or so ago in February. Um, Really smart guy. Driven, been at this since 2012, trying to do this. His company's taken off now. I would just keep an eye on Replit. It's a really interesting company. Yeah. And kind of to our
1: employment conversation, it's crazy how a decade ago, everyone, uh, every headline was screaming at you that the best job to go into was becoming a computer programmer in terms of earnings, in terms of, you know, future career potential. Not I, to say that'll all go away, but. it's changing that's for
0: sure it's gonna it's gonna change faster than design and and writing i mean i think coding is gonna be the first one that's gonna get just massive impact from this it's gonna happen really really quick wow all
1: right last but not least uh on march 25th lex friedman friedman the host of the mega popular lex friedman podcast of which i know we're both big fans paul um Mm -hmm. he interviewed OpenAI ceo sam altman so they had a almost two and a half hour conversation They talked about everything from AGI to Elon Musk's developing beef with OpenAI to the company's work to build powerful but safe, ideally, AI systems. Uh, It was a really interesting glimpse into kind of how Altman's mind works, how he thinks about this stuff, and how at least his position on some of the opportunities and challenges ahead regarding AI, especially now that we have the letter, now that we have a lot of these concerns. Um I know you had some thoughts kind of on this conversation. What were your takeaways? What jumped out at you?
0: One, I think everybody should listen to it. I mean, it's two hours, but it's worth it. Again, we've talked about Sam. We've talked about the importance of open AI to the future of society and business. And I think people need to understand where he's coming from, agree with him or not. Uh, there's going to be lots you don't agree with. There's going to be some stuff you do. I thought two things jumped out to me. One, Lex said, is GPT-4 AGI, like, is it an early form of AGI? And I'm not so sure that Sam knows, like, mm. that's the thing that came across to me first because he actually turned it on Lex. He's like, well, do you think it is? And I think part of it is he was just curious of Lex's opinion, but mm. he's, he's not super clear on what they actually think they've created. And, and I, um, it's just fascinating to hear them, him explain the guardrails they put in place, why they put them in place why they're concerned about AGI. I just think it's good for people to listen to and form their own perspective. The part that I rewound and listened to three different times though, was him describing his role as the CEO of the company. So if we accept that Sam is this really influential person that's dictating like the future of AI and potentially society and, you know, but the economy and everything else, he said, I'm not so sure I'm the right person for this. And Lex said like, why? And he's like, well, I have... You know, there's just things that I have flaws. And he explained a couple, but the one that really stuck out to me is he said, I think I'm pretty disconnected from the reality uh, for most people trying to empathize, but internalize the impact AGI is going to have. I probably feel that less than other people in the world or other people would. And so just the fact that this guy who is pivotal in this, whether he wants to be or not, doesn't feel he's able to empathize with people and the role it's going to have in taking their jobs and changing society is a terrifying thought to me and all i could think is i really 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 hope that he has leaders around him there who do have that ability Hmm. because if these decisions are being made in a vacuum of people who can't relate with society and with the average person then we have big problems and, and I'm, I'm more bullish on the need for the government to get to, to get involved knowing that than I was before. And so I would say, just listen to that. And Cade Metz, our friend at, at the New York times did a phenomenal, uh, uh, like profile on Sam also last week. So you can really start to get a feel for Sam. And I think it's important that people keep a close eye on, on him and open AI, um, because it's gonna affect where this all goes. Wow.
1: And on that note, Paul, I want to thank you for the awesome analysis. As
0: always, there's a lot going on. No coughing fits too. We made it through. Thank you <laughs> everyone great. for dealing with my raspy voice. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll be back. Uh, we're going to actually record a little bit early because I'm on uh, I'm on vacation next week. So Mike and I are going to do one at the end of the week. We will be back. Well, we'll have one for you next Tuesday as always. Um, so yeah, uh, everybody have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.